Are we our own worst enemies? Welcome to Common Sense on the Prairie, a podcast dedicated to helping you demystify the sometimes complex topic of money. I'm Adam Cox, Head of Wealth Management for the First National Bank in Sioux Falls. We're a community bank based out of South Dakota. In this podcast, we share expert insights from around the country and stories from our local community to arm you with the tools you need to make better financial decisions. Because the truth is, the more we talk about this stuff, the better off we're all going to be. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Chief Behavioral Officer at Orion Advisor Solutions. Educated at Brigham Young and Emory Universities, Dr. Crosby is a psychologist and a behavioral finance expert who helps organizations understand the intersection of mind and markets. Dr. Crosby's first book, Personal Benchmark, Integrating Behavioral Finance and Investment Management, was a New York Times bestseller. His second book, The Laws of Wealth, was named the best investment book of 2017 by the Axiom Business Book Awards and has been translated into seven languages. His latest work, The Behavioral Investor, is a comprehensive look at neurology, physiology, and psychology of sound financial decision-making. When he's not consulting around market psychology, Daniel enjoys exploring the American South, fanatically following the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team, and spending time with his wife and three children. Dr. Crosby, welcome to the pod. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate this. All right, before we dive into serious stuff, let's start with a fun one. What, uh, what kind of music you into? So uh, I actually met my wife um, over a shared enthusiasm for Radiohead. So Radiohead is my uh, favorite, favorite band of all time. My wife and I were in a class. Um, it was at the time called Madness in the Media. You could know, I mean, that's totally politically incorrect, but it was sort of a psychology, uh, psychology of film course. And uh, when we had a whole section on on the use of music and you know, film, and found out that you know we both loved Radiohead, and so the the rest is history. So Radiohead's my favorite. Um, I'm you know I'm old enough that I'm kind of frozen in amber in with my college taste. So things like Radiohead, Arcade Fire, Bjork, um, all those things are are sort of what I what I still listen to to this day. Oh, and Jason Jason Isbell. I'm a Southern guy. Uh, so I like some Americana and folky type stuff. So I, I really like Jason Isbell's work as well. Nice. I uh, share the, the love of music. And I also met my wife, actually, the House of Blues. So mm. music always has uh, a spot in my heart as well. All right. So I assume one doesn't just wake up one day and decide to be in behavioral finance, Daniel. So what got you into this? Tell me a little bit about background. And, and I'm interested to hear how your dad helped you get into this as well. Yeah, I wanted to be the catcher for the Cardinals. Um, but Yadi Yadi Molina had that. Yadi Molina had that on lock. And so um yeah, I, I actually went to school. My my PhD is in clinical psychology. So um I I originally studied psychology because I was interested in eating disorders, uh, of all things. I had a I had a close friend who was uh, went through an eating disorder and I I sort of like to think that I helped her find her way out of that. And I really became interested in clinical psychology in just in the very sort of organic process of trying to help my friend. And this is in college. Uh, and so I decided, you know, this, this is what I want to do. Um, about three years into my PhD program, I, I finished my bachelor's. I started my PhD like three days later. And so I was still pretty young when I was, um, uh, you know, about halfway through my PhD program and was just burning out. You know, just, uh, you know, it's, it's important work. It's good work, 
but I just wasn't cut out for it. I was taking work home with me. I wasn't able to be impartial with my clients. And so I said, you know, I called my dad up, you know, he's a great friend and and career counselor in addition to being a great pops. And I called up my dad and said, you know, look, I, I love thinking about, you know, studying why people do the things that they do, but I don't think I want to do it in a medical context anymore. Uh, and he, being a financial advisor, said, well, you know, son, there's a, there's a ton of, of psychology in the world of investment management and financial planning. And I was like, what are, you know, what are you talking about? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, at the right. time, you know, at the time being whatever, 24 years old or whatever, I was like, what are, what are you talking about? You know, you're a numbers guy, you're an analytics guy. Um, but he, he sort of helped open my eyes. Uh, to all the ways that psychology is sort of a, a top tier consideration in the world of, of finance. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, what a path. <laughs> that's, uh, that's crazy. Um, so as we think about this from an investment standpoint, let's, let's start here. Uh, let's start at the basics. What is behavioral finance? How would you describe that to people? So behavioral finance, you know, for me is just, it's just finance that accounts for the messiness of human behavior. You know, it's how real people make real decisions real time, uh, effectively. So a lot of the sort of famous econometric models, a lot of what you read about in your, in your college textbook, um, is, is based on some pretty sweeping assumption. You know, this, this phrase, ceteris paribus, you know, or all else being equal is sort of applied to economics and, and all else is never equal, uh, when it comes to human behavior. So um, behavioral finance just tries to see how real people will make real decisions and accounts for the fact that sometimes we're greedy or fearful or stressed out or hungry or tired or, you know, a million other things uh, that lead us to make imperfect decisions with our money. And how does that impact us as investors? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's the biggest thing that, that impacts us. You know, um, my boss, Eric Clark, says a, a lot of times that the investment problem is solved, right? Whether you're a, a value investor, or a growth investor, a momentum investor, you know, mutual funds, index funds, whatever, there's all these sort of different flavors of, of how to invest. But no matter your preferred style, if you're able to take the ride, if you're able to remain long term, uh, if you're able to sort of stay on on the ride, you'll get to where you're going, right? So we we spend a lot of time arguing about you know sort of one approach uh, versus another and comparing them head to head. In reality, that's not the most important consideration. Uh, the most important consideration is can you stay invested long enough to to realize the gains and appreciate the compounding and the power of whatever style or whatever approach you've chosen. That's much harder to do uh, than, than even to pick the right style. So I, you know, I'll give an example from, from one of my books, The Laws of Wealth. I looked at the top performing mutual fund of, of the 2000s. So from, from 2000 to 2010, which was a horrible time in, you know, for the S&P. The S&P was down slightly uh, right. over that 10-year period. But the top performing fund had an 18.5% annualized return. So like absolutely bonkers, like, you know, just incredible returns for this fund. The average investor in that fund, though, had negative real returns because what they did was every time the fund got hot, 
they would jump in, they'd hear about it, they'd jump in. Every time the fund would cool down, they'd all pile out. Every time the fund would get hot again, people would pile their money in. So even this really, this, this most successful fund sort of numerically was a wash or a loss for the average investor in the fund because their behavior uh, wasn't equal to the strategy. Is that, are you describing a concept called behavior gap? Is that, is that kind of what you're describing? The difference between what the investments actually produce versus what investors realize? Yeah, so it could be called time weighted versus dollar weighted returns. Uh, the the more common the more common term you're right is the behavior gap. So there's been a number, there's been about seven different studies of the behavior gap now. Um, most of them have it at anywhere between two to four percent per year uh, that that people give up. Uh, two to four percent per year that people give over to to bad or emotional decisions. So what's incredible to think about, you know, two to four percent doesn't doesn't sound like that big of a number, but when you think that the average sort of um, you know diversified portfolio has gotten seven or eight percent, um, you know, seven or eight percent a year over long periods of time, if you're handing over you know a third to to half of that to to bad behavior, and then you're compounding those bad choices over time. It, it really, really starts to add up in, in significantly detrimental ways. So over, overcoming the behavior gap is one of sort of our, our constant battles. And a lot of times we'll see that with people who are trying to time the market, right? Yeah, that's, that's certainly the case. So you saw in, I'm going to mess the number up so I won't even take a stab at it, but I saw a recent study by, by a large custodian that found that a, a, a very significant number of, of folks sold their, entire, uh, sold their entire investment portfolio in March and April of 2020, right? So those folks were trying to time the market. They said, look, you know, things have gotten bad. We're scared. We want out. And then, of course, we know what happened. We had, <laughs> you know, we just barely came off the best 12-month period uh, in, in history, there was a. It wasn't year to year, but there was a. There was a rolling twelve month uh, period recently where we had seventy five percent returns, and so you know the the folks that got scared out at that you know least opportune time did not stick around to reap the benefits of the of the snapback and then some. So yeah, timing the market. You know, I talk about it in one of my books. Uh, it's been looked at in nineteen different countries. And we know that in all 19 countries we've, we've studied that the more people try and time the market, the worse they do. Uh, and the more people able, are, are able to do nothing, yep. the better they do. So less activity leads to better results, which is sort of this counterintuitive finding, um, you know, pretty much anywhere else in life. If you, if you put in more effort, you're going to get more, you know, uh, more, more reward. Uh, but in markets, the, the reverse seems to be the case. Following up on that. You know, the more time I spend in this field, the more I'm convinced that complexity kills. Hmm. And you've written a lot about complexity in your work, and in particular, that it can be counter to wealth creation. In particular, you had this, this great line that I saw. I said, uh, you said, despite the unequivocal truth that investor behavior is a better predictor of wealth creation than fund selection or market timing, no one dreams about not panicking, making regular contributions, and maintaining a long-term focus. Such a great line. Tell me more about that. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, uh, I'm going to butcher 
butcher the Einstein quote. So Einstein has a quote that says effectively, you know, we, we can't, we can't solve problems at the level of thinking that created them. So we know that financial markets are, uh, you know, infinitely complex. They're dynamic. They're ever changing. And so we think that we need an, an equally dynamic, I- I- equally ever changing, uh, dynamic sort of complex, uh, puzzle if we are to crack the code of, of equity markets, say. And in fact, we find that, that the reverse is true. You know, go back to my studies talking about how people did nothing, uh, beat, beat people who did something. And, and what we find is that there's, there's a really strong paradox at the heart of this, which is that the more complex and dynamic uh, a system becomes, the more simple your rules need to be if you're able to win that game. So you see things like Morningstar did, um, uh, Morningstar did a survey, excuse me, a study uh, a couple of years ago that looked at the best predictor of fund performance. They looked at mutual funds and ETFs and they said, you know, what's the, what's the best predictor of, of whether or not a fund will do well. And the best predictor was expense ratio. So, you know, uh, it's not the years of experience of the, of the fund manager. It's not the previous five-year performance. It's not any of these sort of complex things. It's just, is it expensive or not is, you know, is one of the primary things we should look at, you know, likewise, um, you know, staying out of your own way. So just, you know, when, when we look at people who are really successful in markets, uh, they've sort of embraced the paradox at the heart of this thing. They've realized that complexity kills and they've gotten a few things right. They've managed their fees. They've they've worked with someone who can be a a guide to them on this journey, and they stay out of their own way. And like, if you can do those three things, you're set. Which is so interesting to me, and and I agree with you 100. But you know as well as I do, our industry is set up to sell complexity, um, particularly to high net worth investors. And of course, we don't use the word complexity; we call it sophistication or something like that because it plays on that need that we all have to to feel special. So I'm wondering if you have any advice on how we can overcome that and think a little bit more critically about complexity and those that are trying to sell that to us as a solution. Yeah. So, you know, I've been, this is an argument. Argument is too strong a word. This is a conversation I've been having with someone on Twitter recently. A friend of, a friend of mine on Twitter <laughs> has been sort of bemoaning the fact that that uh, non-accredited investors don't have access to some of the same sort of financial instruments that um, that that wealthier people do, and I've sort of been saying to him, "Look, there's there's no uh, you know there's sort of no pot of gold at the end of the whatever the number is two fifty k plus a year rainbow that that makes you an accredited investor. Most of the best investments are shockingly simple." And yet we know that across disciplines, right? So it's not just finance. Finance gets a bad reputation, but every discipline has an, uh, you know, every job, every discipline has a vested interest in being uh, opaque, in sort of having their own jargon, and in sort of trying to wall out uh, outsiders because that's how we justify, um, you know, charging for our advice and charging a fee, which is all very reasonable, Right. And so some of that opacity, I think, is a function sure. of us just trying to um, 
just us trying to prove our worth and, and us trying to show clients that, that we know what we're talking about. And it's not unique to financial services. Doctors do it. Lawyers do it. Like, you know, sort of every professional, you know, pe- the people who change your oil do this, right? Like every sort of professional um, uh, undertaking has jargon and has these walls that we try and keep people out with. But we need to lose that. I think we as an industry need to, to lose that sort of inferiority complex or that, that, that fear that people are going to, you know, <laughs> find out that they can do this themselves because we actually offer a great deal of value, right? Yeah. We actually offer a great deal of value that's relational and that's behavioral, which is everything we've, we've talked about today. But, you know, one of the things that I talked about in my book, I, I gave some tips in the laws of wealth for trying to select a financial advisor. And one of the things that I, that I asked is to, to ask that if you're interviewing an advisor, ask her or him to explain to you in two minutes or less what their investment philosophy is. And if they can't do it or they're overly complex and they're in sort of in jargony in their, in their speaking, they don't understand it well. Um, because, you know, as the great scientist Richard Feynman mm. talked about, it's only when you understand something very deeply that you're able to teach it to a five-year-old. And so that's a good test. If people can't make it simple for you, they're not, they're not who you want to work with. So Vanguard did some, uh, I think, pretty uh, interesting work in defining the value of an advisor. And it speaks to what you were talking about there. It's not just asset selection and timing the market, things like that. The, the traditional way we think of working with an advisor, they found something different. Can you walk us through what Vanguard found and how that might reframe how we select advisors going forward? Yeah, so Vanguard um, did this famous study called uh, Advisors Alpha, right? And it's all about the sort of behavioral benefits of of working with an advisor. But by way of quick digression, there's actually a handful of other organizations who've done similar work. Vanguard's was probably the most granular and the most well-known. But there's a handful of other um, organizations who've, who've done similar work, and all of them find that in the ballpark of 2 to 3% a year, right? People who work with an advisor do about 2 to 3% a year better than those who don't. So they found two things that are interesting, right? Um, they found one that the value of advice is lumpy. So this is I think that something that people don't talk about a lot. There's years where you probably don't get a ton of good out of working with your advisor. Like it's just an easy year. The market's kind of up and to the right. It's not too difficult. Your advisor is perhaps not adding a lot of value there. And there's years where your advisor can help you to make one choice that is so important that you will never be able to pay them back again if you work with them for the next 40 years, right? Like you think about March of, um, you know, March of, of 2020, someone who's on the fence between staying invested, someone with a million dollar portfolio who's, uh, on the fence between staying invested and getting out. Um, if the advisor worked to convince them to stay invested, that person's fees for the rest of their life will never begin to match the value added by that advisor. The one thing that we know is that advice is uh, the, the value of advice is, is lumpy, but it's, but it's there. And the second thing that we know uh, is that advisors add the most value through decisional coaching and like handholding, basically keeping you out of your way, 
keeping yeah. you from being emotional and making impulsive decisions. Uh, the value added by that handholding and that emotional coaching is about 5x uh, the value added by stock selection or asset allocation. Uh, and yet the average consumer has that very much inverted. You know, when we look at studies of, of where uh, clients think they're getting value, clients think the value is in the buying and selling of shares uh, when in fact uh, the real value is in keeping folks out of their own way. Yeah, I agree. So people might be surprised given our backgrounds and what we do for a living that you and I both enthusiastically use a financial advisor ourselves. Uh, for me, I really want someone to challenge me and have that objective voice and frankly to challenge my biases that I know I come to to money with. And plus the mm -hmm. the the ability for someone to work with my my wife Diane should something happen to me that she already knows and she trusts. So what about you? Why do you, uh, why do you use an advisor? Well, first of all, uh, it's my dad and he would kill me if I didn't, but no, more <laughs> importantly, more, more, more yeah. importantly, uh, and the actual, you know, the actual reason I use an advisor is this, you know, all of this stuff we've talked about, it's not a knowing thing. It's a feeling thing. So I'll give you some examples. Uh, there's something called the knowing-doing gap, and we see it all over the place. Uh, one of the primary causes of death in the U.S. is noncompliance with medication, right? Like people getting sick, going to the doctor, and then not taking their medication as prescribed, right? That's one of the biggest causes of death in the country. So it's like we have, we have the cure, right? We have the cure. The cure is sitting right there and people just won't take their pills, right? Or they won't get their shot or whatever it is. Mm. We have the science. We just don't have the behavior. You know, you look too at my, one of my favorite examples. Um, in the early 90s, the U.S. started labeling all of its food, right? So you get the nutritional information on all your food, calories, fat, protein, all that good stuff, sodium, so you know what you're putting in your body. Since that time, the average American eater is, we have, we have twice the incidence of obesity and three times the incidence of, of morbid obesity since the time when we had perfect information about what we were putting in our bodies. And that's because it's not a factual thing, right? When I when I am walking through the airport after a long trip and I eat a Cinnabon instead of a salad, it's not because I think the Cinnabon's better for me. It's just because I don't care, right? Like I'm tired, I'm stressed out, I'm just doing something emotional. The same is true of, of money. I have written three best-selling books on behavioral finance. And for all my study... I am no better than the next person when it comes to my own money. I am no more rational. I am no more sane. I am no better a decision maker than, you know, Joe or Jane off the street when it comes to my money, because it's not a matter of me knowing the right thing to do. It's the matter of it being an emotional thing for me. And so I'm terrible. Like I'm, I'm terrible about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> even when I know the right thing to do. And so that's why I pay an advisor to, to help keep me out of my own way because it's not, a, it's not a knowing thing. It's a feeling thing. And relationships 
are, are much better at managing feelings than, than a textbook is. Sure. So we don't have an education problem. We've got a behavior problem. Mm-hmm. That's right. So humans are not hardwired to make great investment decisions. And uh, so I'm wondering, how do we overcome these tendencies to make poor investment decisions, particularly in times of great stress or on the opposite, in times of euphoria? Yeah, so you're, you're too right. You know, my, my most recent book, The Behavioral Investor, is really all about um, how everything from our brains to our bodies to the very societies and cities in which we live sort of all conspire to make us bad investors. And, you know, we basically, you know, God or nature or whatever could, could not have designed a much worse investor than you or I. I mean, we're just, we're <laughs> profoundly bad at this. Like yeah. we're why, you know, we're wired for immediacy. We're wired for sh- short termism. Um, good investing requires long termism and uh, embracing uncertainty and taking risk and like doing all these things that we're just not sort of programmed to do. Uh, so we're just, we're, we're terrible at it. So when it comes to what we can do, uh, I think there's three, there's three E's. I kind of have these, these, these three E's. The first E is education. So like now having thoroughly dissed education in my last segment, let me talk about what it can do, right? So education <laughs> is, yeah. education is just getting the, the blocking and tackling right. Like knowing, knowing what to expect and knowing what to look for. And more than becoming like a money management whiz, um, education is about what's called meta-knowledge. So meta-knowledge is almost like knowing what you don't know. So I, um, I know that I can't fix my car, right? Like if my car, uh, if my car starts making funny noises, I don't have the knowledge to fix my car but I do have the meta knowledge and the humility to know that I can't fix my car. So like, we just need to know enough to know where we need help. So that educational layer is sort of necessary, but, but not sufficient. The second E is environment. Sure. We need a portfolio uh, that is suited to our personality and to our risk preferences so that we can survive, right? We need to, we need the, the, the right mix of assets that's going to maximize our ability to take the ride and to, to stay on long enough uh, to, to cross the finish line, whatever that looks like. And then the 30 is one we've talked about a bit today, which is encouragement, which this is the help of a, of a trusted third party or an advisor. Uh, because even if we have the right education, even if we have the right environment or portfolio, there's still going to be those moments where we're, we're not seeing the world clearly and we need that sort of personal financial trainer uh, to come in there and, and help us, you know, make that right call at the right time. So, you know, get that education, get that basic financial education, get the right environment through the right portfolio mix, and then have a partner in your corner uh, to encourage you and engage you at, at the times when you when you least want to do the right thing. Yeah, that's great stuff. Speaking of environment, we live in a time of really incredible innovation. And we as investors can sometimes get swept up in, in that innovation. So what is new era thinking and what risk does that pose to, to us as investors? 
Yeah, so new new it's been said that the most dangerous words in investing are this time is different. And so new era thinking is this yeah. uh this sort of idea that the old rules don't apply, right? You saw this a lot during the dot com bubble of the the turn of the century. Um there was there was this thought that sort of old financial metrics like profitability and margins and revenues and and sales and things like that were sort of dinosaur outmoded ways to to gauge a company. Instead, you needed to gauge a company on sort of uh, hype and eyeballs, right? Like sort of eyeballs on the page and like how many visitors did they have? Never mind that they weren't able to monetize it, things yeah. like that. And candidly, you're seeing a lot of that now. I mean, we are living through a golden right. age of financial nonsense right now. <laughs> And I mean, there's just a lot of really, <laughs> there's just yeah. a lot of really crazy and stupid <laughs> things being passed off right now. And so, uh, you know, it, Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, right? So we, we have to keep our eyes open for innovation yep. because humankind is always pressing forward and doing incredible and unprecedented things. This isn't you know, this isn't that. There will be innovations, there will be new uh, new breakthroughs, there will be new medicines, new technologies. That's all awesome. But what's different is, though, is that a lot of the fundaments of what, what make a, a stock good or what make a company worth investing in uh, are pretty tried and true. You know, are you paying a fair price for it? Does it have good, competent leadership? You know, does it look good? You know, does, does the spreadsheet look good? All those things will, you know, they, they matter today and they'll matter a hundred years from now. And, you know, a final note here is that great innovations don't always make great investments. You know, uh, Warren Buffett has this right. great line about, you know, he, he, <laughs> He wished he could take the Wright brothers out and, you know, shoot them or something like that because he's lost so much money investing in airlines, <laughs> right? Now, have airlines, have yeah, airlines yep. changed the way we live? Absolutely, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to think of, uh, you know, a more revolutionary or incredible technology than, than air travel, especially when it was in its, uh, in, in its nascence, but it hasn't been a good investment. So it's it's possible for something to be an incredible innovation and a very crummy investment. And I think most investors don't, uh, they, they conflate how revolutionary something is with how good an investment it will be. Uh, and, and that's not always the case. You know, Google was like the whatever, 26th search engine. And so was was the internet huge? Yes. Was search huge? Yes. But there's a, a vast graveyard of losers and one real winner, you know, and so you have to look at, at uh, the sort of the underlying business and make sure that the innovation is supported by a great business. I've heard you say recently that investors have never been more primed for fear and greed than they are today. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so, um, you know, 1929 for a little market history, right? 1929, sort of one of the early years of the Great Depression. 1999 was the very hype of the uh, height of the internet bubble hype, right? Right before that bubble crashed. And we lived through both of those years last year. I mean, there were elements of last year 
that were as backbreaking as any depression, right? The level of joblessness, uh, the precipitousness of the decline in the value of stocks. It was the fastest bear market of all time. Scary stuff. All sort of coincident with a virus that we at the time knew nothing about and had no real means to treat. I mean, it was super, super scary. And then hot on the heels of that, you have, you know, a quarter of all the money in circulation being printed. You have the best 12 months in the stock market of all time. Uh, You have incredible pent up demand. I mean, I don't know if you've been out recently. I live in Atlanta everywhere I go. (laughs) Every grocery store is packed, every movie theater, every ball game. Like people are so hungry to to re-engage and get back out in the world. And so we've lived through this cataclysmic downturn and this insane uptick in the same year. And it's very disorienting. People have weird expectations to the upside and the downside now. And so we're seeing a lot of really bad decision-making right now. And I I don't think we've ever been more primed to get it wrong than we are perhaps right now. So markets recently have drawn in all sorts of new participants, whether that's because of the pandemic or social influence or gamifying investing. Do you think that's a good thing or ultimately a bad thing? You know, uh, I'm going to give a frustrating answer here. I think that's kind of TBD. Um, because yeah. the, the good news is the good news is we want new market participants, right? Like we want people learning about investing. We want people starting at a young age. You know, compounding is one of the most powerful forces you have on your side. And and getting started at a young age is is such a head start in life. So on, on the one hand, I'm happy that these folks are here, like however they they got there, right? Uh, But on the other hand, I really fear that people are learning the wrong lessons, right? (laughs) You know, I really fear that people are learning the wrong lessons. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a lot of stock picking. There's a lot of sort of mob mentality around some of these meme stocks. And there's just a proliferation of junk, Right. Like we're just seeing, you know, this isn't a diss on Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of the more sort of established um, crypto plays. But I mean, there's a, you know, there's a hundred new meme coins a day that people are gaming and trying to get rich on that have no underlying value. And it's just, uh, it's a weird time. So on the one hand, uh, I'm glad these folks are here. My hope is that they don't get so badly burned by some of the shenanigans that we're seeing right now that they never come back, right? If they, right. If they suffer a loss, yeah. I hope that they stick around to learn from that loss and not that they're scared away indefinitely uh, on the back of some, you know, some dumb speculative play they made trying to get rich quick. So one of the reasons why I do this podcast is to get people talking about money, uh, which I think is, is healthy. And do you think we're ever going to get to a point where talking about money is less taboo than it is today? So we're, we're headed in the right direction. So we, we are headed in the right direction and, and women in particular are, are making big strides there. So, you know, I think uh, historically yeah. when we look at the, there's been a dramatic confidence gap between men and women with the, the uh, with respect to the ease with which they, they talked about money 
um, men were just more comfortable talking about and transacting uh, with sort of high finance, if you will, than women historically. And that's being erased. Like in the last 15 to 20 years, we're seeing, um, you know, society coming around to more egalitarian views. Um, and just women are getting way more comfortable. So that's a big piece. That's a big piece of that comfort. You can't have half the world, you know, sort of uh, societally relegated to, to a second place when it comes to talking about money. So we're seeing positive changes there, which will positively, uh, you know, impact everyone involved. I think we're moving in the right direction. But what happens is we've conflated money with too many things. Like money is sort of liquid happiness or liquid success to people. You know, they sort of think that mm -hmm. money is shorthand for how good you are or how um, accomplished or how intelligent or how worthwhile. And as long as money has all that baggage um, sort of tied up with it, it's going to be hard for us to have honest conversations about that. Um, I attended a, a religious university and, and one of my friends actually did uh, his dissertation on uh, whether or not wealthy people were perceived to be more righteous. Basically, you know, were, were, were wealthy people perceived to be more sort of orthodox and in good standing members of the faith? And what they found was yes. So, you know, <laughs> this money has become wrapped up in sort of too many things that it has nothing to do with. And until we sort of disentangle money from, from all those trappings, I don't ever think we can have sort of honest conversations about it. So money, money to me is about freedom, right? Money gives you freedom. It gives you choice. And that's about all it does. Um, it doesn't make you a good person. It doesn't make you a bad person. Doesn't make you pretty or ugly or smart or stupid. Um, you know, it's just sort of, it's freedom to me. So your title is Chief Behavioral Officer uh, at Orion. Tell us a little bit about your role and how you're impacting the advisor community and which then impacts the investors that work with those advisors. Sure. So I have, um, we love, we love threes that uh, are alliterative. So I had, we talked about the three E's <laughs> earlier. We'll talk about the three T's now. Um, my job is all about training tools and technology. So the training piece, uh, the training piece is all about helping advisors better interface with their clients, right? I'm in a very real respect coaching advisors on how to develop rapport with their clients, how to have hard conversations with their clients, how to keep their clients, uh, you know, sort of cool, calm and collected when, when markets are anything but. So there's a training and educational piece that I'm very uh, much a part of. Uh, the tools piece we're developing cool stuff like we we just developed and I think I can talk about this. We just developed an assessment, uh, uh, sort of a, a, couple, <laughs> a couple's money style inventory, right? When you look at uh, the number one cause of divorce in this country is, is people fighting about money. And so one of the things that we want to do is give advisors tools for helping, you know, two partners understand there are different styles with respect to money, not that one's good and one's bad, but just they're, they're different choices or ways of being in the world and give them tools to talk about that. And then finally, um, technology, right? So we deliver technology, but, but technology isn't neutral. 
I'm not going to name names, but if you look at some of the popular trading apps, they have been engineered <laughs> to get people to trade very often, right? They've been engineered to gamify the yeah. thing, to make it seem less real. And I mean, they are to investing what, you know, what Joe Camel is to lung health basically right they're in they're incentivizing people yeah, right. to make yeah. <laughs> to make poor decisions and so what we try and do is is the white the white hat version of that uh, i look at all of our technology and say you know how could it be more investor centric how can we present this how can we have a user experience that engenders a a positive response in the people that we serve and and their end investors so those, it's kind of a weird title, right? There's not a whole lot of chief behavioral officers, but that those are sort of my, <laughs> my three roles at the company. All right. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Yeah, so I have a podcast myself. It's called Standard Deviations. I'd love everyone to check it out. Um, I've written two books that I'd really it's recommend awesome, you check the out. Uh, the, the Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor, I think are my two best books. And then, you know, I'm online, all the usual places, uh, Daniel Crosby, if you're looking on Twitter or LinkedIn. Well, I'm a big fan of your work and uh, I loved your book, The Laws of Wealth, and your podcast is fantastic. So I would highly encourage our listeners to to check you out. The, the stuff that you come up with uh, is, is really, really fantastic. So thank you for the time today, Daniel. I appreciate it. This was an awesome conversation and uh, hopefully we can stay in touch and do this again sometime. Yeah, I'd love to. My pleasure. I hope you found this helpful. If you did, please subscribe and share with your family or friends. If you have a topic you want us to cover in future episodes, send us a note through our website. And if you're at the point where you want an expert opinion on your finances, reach out and we'd be happy to start a conversation. And remember, any comments, insights, or strategies discussed on this podcast are intended to be general in nature and therefore may not be suitable for you and your situation, whatever that may be. Before acting on anything we discuss, please consult with your attorney, CPA, and or your financial advisor.